0: your hand. I see that hand in the back. And we'll go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we are so um, uh, grateful to be here this morning again to be edified and um, to learn from your scripture, uh, to hear your truth that we've heard it preached already this morning. And I pray you would continue um, to allow us to see more of your goodness and your grace uh, toward us. Well, let us be um, humble as we come to your word and to um, accept whatever it is you would like us to learn today. That we would be um, humble enough to uh, change things in our hearts and in our lives if we need to. Um, Lord, let us be pleasing to you in this way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this is uh, week three of our three-week uh, little series here. Um, titled, When Good Things Happen to Bad People. And so far, for the past two weeks, uh, we've considered a very important kind of foundational truth about men, and that is the fact that men are sinful. That was our first week, uh, talking all about man's sin. Um, And because of that, they are utterly and entirely without hope for themselves when it comes to salvation. Uh, That was the point of our first week. And then week two, we talked all about God's grace and the fact that um, while God is holy and just and he must necessarily punish sin, we saw very clearly that God is still gracious to all people. We talked about common grace that extends to everyone. And then specifically, we talked about saving grace and that for those that do um, repent and come to belief. Um, faith in christ god gives them so much more measures of grace and saving grace and then today like i said last week we have a few things to finish up that we didn't get to last week and then we're going to try to apply all of this Um, what do we do in light of learning about man's sinfulness and god's grace And I want to share this quote again that I read last week from Martin Lloyd-Jones just because I think it's a great quote Um, and because it kind of sums up uh, the reason that I've been kind of going um, in this way. And it says this, um, quote, The man who really knows the most about the grace of God is the man who knows the most about his own sinfulness, end quote. So I think this was what um, I was hoping to do for these three weeks is to help us see, first of all, the depths of our sin, and then to see right next to that the depths, or you might say the heights, of God's grace. Um, And it really is amazing. Um, The first section here, I titled it, So Great a Salvation. And um, we want to carefully think about the fact that really when we look at um, man and his sin, he really has one problem um, that must be solved, and that is the fact that, sinful man is going to endure punishment for sin. And we looked at several different punishments and penalties for sin. Um, And I think we have to be clear that um, there really is just one thing primarily that Christ saves people from, and that is from God's wrath. God's wrath against sin is what um, the atonement is about. Because we know John 3.36 says that those that don't believe, well, then God's wrath abides on them. Um, and so we're going to look at five different things here that, that kind of um, kind of looks at each of these penalties of sin and we'll look at the way that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty and satisfied every single one of those. Um, so that's, let's begin, first of all, and, again, there's lots of scripture today. It may, again, feel like Bible drill. Um, but we're going to start in Hebrews 9.26. Um, the verses are all there in your outline. And um, we'll go each one in order. Hebrews 9.26. And before I read it, and one of the th- interesting things about Hebrews is John MacArthur has said that Hebrews is actually a commentary on the book of Leviticus. And the fact that so much of Hebrews talks about how Christ is superior in every way to the Old Covenant. And that the sacrificial system, this was very much part of what Dan spoke about uh, this morning. Um, The fact that uh, the priests had to continually offer sacrifices over and over again um, in order for sins to be put away. Um, But in Christ, we have one, the Lamb, as Dan spoke about, that sacrificed once for all. Hebrews 9.26 says otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So number one in our notes we talked about the fact that one of the penalties of sin is physical death. So physical death number one and the way that Christ has paid that penalty was in the sacrifice of himself. So physical death, Christ has paid that with his sacrifice. Now, we know that we still don't entirely, well, not at all really, um, escape the fact that death will still happen someday for each of us um, unless the Lord comes again. There's an appointed hour where each of us um, will come on this earth to die. Um, but for those of us that are in Christ, we know that death is no longer our enemy, right? Um, and the reason that we can have hope, even with the fact of physical death still looming out there at some point, um, is that Christ has made the sacrifice for us. Um, and we need, need not fear physical death. Uh, if we didn't have Christ's sacrifice, we wouldn't have any hope for the life to come. So physical death, Christ has paid that with his sacrifice, number one. Number two, we'll go to John, 1 John 4.10. Which says, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, the second type of death that we talked about as a penalty for sin was eternal death. And this has all to do with God's wrath. Because God's wrath must be satisfied in one of two ways. For those that don't ever come to believe in Christ, Then God's wrath abides on them, we know from Scripture, an eternity in hell. But there's a very good word here for us, aside from the fact that it's just fun to say, propitiation. It's a very important word for us, that Christ is our propitiation. And that has all to do with the fact that he has satisfied God's wrath um, for us. Such that we had looked in Ephesians where it says that... um, We're no longer children of wrath, but now we're made his own sons and daughters. So, God's wrath or eternal death, Christ has satisfied that by being our propitiation. That's number two. Number three, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. It says, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So this penalty we're looking at, we looked at physical death, eternal death. Now this is what I would say is spiritual death which necessarily means for those that are dead in their sins that they are opposed to God and they're alienated from him. So the key word from these verses is even though we were opposed to God and alienated from him, through Christ we have been reconciled. So this is the way that Christ has paid that penalty as he reconciles us to the Father. No longer opposed, we're able to be brought in to fellowship with God because of this reconciliation. No longer enemies, but friends. That's number three. Number four, Mark 10, 45. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then let me also read Colossians. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the reality was, before any of us met Christ, we were in bondage to sin. This was another penalty that we experienced. We were in bondage to sin. Sin was really our master. And in that, we really didn't... um, Um, Until God perhaps began to to draw us to himself, we really kind of liked it that way. Any one of us could probably stand and give testimony of the fact that before we met Christ, we um, were in bondage to sin, and that was probably okay with us. That was just the life that we knew. Um, But what these verses say, the key word here is ransomed and redeemed. Although we were in bondage to sin and sin was our master, in fact, Christ has now purchased us, redeemed us, or ransomed us so that we no longer would serve sin, but who would we serve instead? We'd serve Christ. We know that <clears throat> certainly looking back on it for those of us that are believers, um, probably most of us here in the room. um Looking back on it now, it kind of surprises us that we would have enjoyed being in bondage to sin. Because we know on this side of the cross, the um, miserable and um, uh, bitter wages that sin pays. We've experienced that ourselves. But now with our master being Christ, the wages that he pays are not bitter at all. They're sweet and they're refreshing. So he's ransomed us. And redeemed us. Number five, I'll go back to Hebrews briefly. Hebrews 9 13 and 14. Again, looking back at the Old Covenant, the system of sacrificing animals over and over again. 9.13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We looked at Mark chapter 7 where Jesus talked about the fact that out of the heart of man come all sorts of um, vile things. Number five here is that we were defiled by sin. We were unclean because of our sins. And the Old Covenant, as it says, made some way for external things to be cleansed. But it didn't provide a way for a man's heart to be made clean. Um, And we know clearly from the scripture, what is it that it takes to cleanse a man's heart? What does it say? Russ says, the blood of Christ. That is what can cleanse a man's heart. Um, And in some ways... Thinking about it, it kind of almost seems like a grotesque thing because we don't think of blood being a cleansing agent. I know my wife doesn't have a bottle of blood that she uses to clean off the kitchen counter after preparing a meal. Um, But God has seen fit to make clear that it's Christ's blood that cleanses us. And I think what purpose that serves is for us to realize um, the I'm having trouble finding the right word. Um, the depth of our sin was so heinous that it required God's own son to die and spill his blood to cleanse us from that sin. Um, and the blood of animals couldn't do it. The blood of animals couldn't do it. It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to really take away sin. But the blood of Christ's own son cleanses us from our sin. And interestingly, at the end of verse 14, it begins to speak of kind of the end that this is working toward. It says it cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now this begins to point to something after salvation. Now it points to sanctification. There is a purpose here. We're cleansed and made clean so that we can serve. And we'll come back to this later. Just keep that in mind. So, for every one of these penalties, whether it was physical death, eternal death, spiritual death, and bondage to sin, or we've been defiled, Christ has met every one of those, and that He was a sacrifice, He satisfied God's wrath, He's been reconciled to, to the Father, ransomed, redeemed, and cleansed by His blood. Every single one of the problems we had as sinners is solved by Christ. So then, after all that, and from the last two weeks, now what do we do? Because I know if you're anything like me, that, you know, hopefully you're not really like me, but um, you may be like me in some ways. And maybe you enjoy studying doctrine and theology. I I find it very interesting, and I I like it. Um, But studying these things just for themselves can be dangerous. Because we know that knowledge can just, what, just puff up. And if we're studying rich doctrines of the faith just for the sake of learning more things, then we're not going to be very well served at all. Um, So we need to find a way for these doctrines to move us to take some action. Um, And I'm going to give us quite a few actions here um, that what we can do in light of this. Um, First and foremost, um, in light of man's sinfulness and in light of God's grace, the first thing that anyone has to do foundationally is to repent and believe the gospel. That's the first thing we have to do. Now, It may be a bit strange, um, perhaps, to kind of give a gospel call like this in Sunday school, but I think it's the first place we have to go. But in light of man's sin and in light of God's grace, the first thing that anyone should do is to repent and believe the gospel. And this is the gospel. that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the first thing we have to do, repent and believe the gospel, and I want to give us, first of all, some things that anyone here in the room that perhaps has not repented, then this is for you. But for those of us that have, then this is also for us, because I want to try to give us a way to help us share the gospel with others. This is something that I'm trying to work on myself, and perhaps any one of us might be doing the same with with our families and our workplaces so I want to give us five S's, and this is not something I created. I see Jason Cruz back there. He, he gave the five S's not too long ago at a men's breakfast. I don't know where he got them. Baker. Ernie Baker. Okay. So the five S's, this is a way to kind of explain the gospel, and this is for anyone um, that needs to share or anyone that needs to believe. The first S is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. We know from numerous scriptures that this is the case Daniel chapter 4, God does as he pleases among the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? God is sovereign over all things. That's the first S, God is sovereign. And I would also perhaps add to that that God is holy. He's sovereign and he's holy and that there is no sin in God at all. Um. That's the first S. The second S is sin. We all know Romans 3.23, through all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Knowing that God is sovereign and glorious and holy, it's easy to understand that in our sin we fall far short of that. That's the second S is sin. The third S is situation. And that in light of God and the light of who man is in their sin, the situation is this. Hebrews 9.27 says, For it is appointed once for man to die, and then, what? Judgment. Um, Reminds me of that old revival preacher R.G. Lee's sermon, Payday Someday. Um, There is coming a day that's fixed where men will give an account be held accountable to God. So that's the situation. And it's, and it's a very dangerous situation to be in for anyone outside of Christ. Um, that's the situation people in, are in. That judgment is coming. So the fourth S, number four, is Savior. And Dan said it far better talking about a Savior than I could attempt to do in his sermon today. But Romans 3, 24 through 26 talking about being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the way that God is able to save sinners. He's able to be just in punishing sin. He's able to do it because he's punished his son in our place. That's what enables Christ to be our Savior. Uh, That was Romans uh, 3, 24 through 26. And, of course, we know, again, as Dan said this morning, that Jesus Christ is the world's only Savior. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which which we may be saved. Jesus is the only Savior that we have. So the fifth S now is switch. Which is perhaps a word that starts with S, but maybe we should just use the word repentance. Um, Turn from sin. Peter preached at Pentecost. And the crowd was cut to the heart, and they said, well, what do we do? What was it that Peter said? He said, repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, Repentance is number five, or switch. So that's the first thing, that if if anyone doesn't come here first in light of God's grace and man's sin, they're not going to get anywhere else. Repent and believe the gospel, first of all. Now, the rest of this handout and the things we'll talk about are really for people that are already believers. These are things that all of us probably um, should be um, thinking about in light of the fact that we're still sinners and that God is still gracious to us. So, letter B, I have cultivate sorrow for sin. Cultivate sorrow for and confess sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10. says, the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So when we're thinking about cultivating sorrow for our sin, I think of two things primarily. First of all is that in order to do this, or the reason we do it is that we need to first of all realize who it is we've sinned against. And that we've sinned against God. Cultivating sorrow for our sin, I think, means first of all realizing it is God that we have sinned against. I think this is the sorrow according to the will of God that this verse speaks about. It's God we've sinned against. And then secondly, cultivating sorrow for our sin means we need to see sin, see our sin as God sees it. It's so easy for us to explain it away Or to ignore it We need to see Sin as God sees it Um, We should also be careful When it comes to cultivating sorrow For our sin And that we don't um, turn it into some sort of Just morbid introspection Kind of stewing over All of the stuff about us Because that can become selfish and not focused on God at all. Um, we should be sorrowful for our sin, not sorrowful for ourselves. Cuz we should remember that we're saved by his wounds, not ours. We're saved by his griefs, not ours. And we're not saved by our own tears, but by his blood, right? I'll share a quote from Spurgeon. He said, "People seem to jump into faith very quickly nowadays." I do not disapprove of that happy leap, but still I hope my old friend repentance is not dead. I am desperately in love with repentance. It seems to me to be the twin sister to faith. I do not myself understand much about dry-eyed faith. I know that I came to Christ by way of the weeping cross. I think we need to make sure that we're taking appropriate time on occasion, to see sin for the way God sees it and truly be sorrowful for it. And knowing that if there are tears involved, that's fine for a a time, but know that tears of sadness for our sin should very quickly perhaps move to be tears of joy and worship for what God has done. And that brings us right to the next topic, letter C is to worship. In light of man's sin and in light of God's grace, we should worship him. And I'm going to say in in at least two different ways. This is not a comprehensive treatment of how we worship as believers. But um, in this context, we'll go to Ephesians 2 and we'll look at two different ways we should worship God in light of these things. I'll go ahead and just read the first ten verses of chapter 2 even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pardon me here. So two ways we should worship. Number one, worship God for who he is. First of all. Number two, worship God for what he has done. Let's be a little bit interactive here. Um, Look at these verses I've just read. Hopefully, maybe you're there in your Bible right now. Um, What does it say in these verses about who God is? How does this describe God? What do you see? Rich in mercy, that's right. What else? Loving, yes. And who was it that he loved? Us, okay. Anything else? Giver of life? Yes, sir? Verse 7. Perhaps this is becoming redundant, but the riches of his grace and kindness. This is talking all about who God is. And then now look in these same verses, and what do you see about what God has done? What are the actions that he has taken? Quickened us together with Christ. Saved us. Verse 5 says he made us what? Made us alive. In verse 6 what does it say? He raised us up. That's right. And not only that, he also seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Yes, that's right. So quite a few things in these verses that talk about things that or things or who God is and the things that God has done, and of course, knowing that the things that he's done have flown straight from flowed from his character. The reason he's done these things is because of who he is and again, just a, a practical note that this is one of those places where um, Dan has said before that our theology should be leading to doxology, right? The things we learn about God should be leading us to worship him. And I think it should be easy for us to worship in light of what God has done for us. Um, And this is not just worship, of course, in the context of a worship service. We know that worship is a life lived in obedience to God. Um, But our worship should be empowered by His grace and that He's shown towards us. You can turn the page. The next thing perhaps we should do in light of man's sinfulness and God's grace is we should pray. The first way we should pray, First John nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. first way to pray is to confess sin. And again, when we're sorrowful for our sin and we rightly see it the way that God sees it, um, we'll also hopefully see the detrimental effect that it has on our fellowship with him. We know that when we sin, um, our fellowship with our Father is disrupted. And confessing our sin is an end to restore that fellowship with him. So confessing sin is the first way we should pray. The second way that I think we should pray in light of man's sinfulness and God's grace is I think that we should pray um, for God to continue to be patient with the unbelievers that we know as we saw in Ezekiel previously Ezekiel 33:11 says say to them as I live declares the Lord God I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways why then will you die o house of Israel God is patient with sinners he was patient with all of us for some period of time I think the next way we should pray is that God would be patient for those around us that we know are not believers yet. And in a similar way, we should pray that God would use us in some way to help these other people come to repentance. Um, As God is patiently, hopefully, drawing them to himself, we should pray that God would use us in that, that we would be faithful to um, share the gospel with people that we know that need it. So pray for God to be patient with unbelievers and pray that he would use us to share with them. And then the third way that I think we should pray in light of these things is we should pray for sanctification. I'm going to read a prayer that Paul made for the people in Colossae. And again nothing that I think I ever say. Is really my own work. I see Mike Cosgrove back there. and This next point comes straight from him. Um, Colossians 1.9-12 through 12 says this. For this reason also. Since the day we heard of it. We have not ceased to pray for you. And to ask that you may be filled. With the knowledge of his will. And all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. I think this is key for us to pray for sanctification, not only for our own, but for others around us. Um, it really is amazing to look at the things that Paul was praying for, for these people. Um, this was serious stuff, praying that they would be filled with wisdom and understanding, with the knowledge of God's will, that they would be pleasing to God and bear fruit, that they would be strengthened with all power. And it seems clear to me that Paul is mostly concerned about their souls, their spiritual needs. Um, I found a quote from Thomas Watson that is perhaps applicable here. These kind of prayers that Paul was praying, Thomas Watson said, these are the prayers that are recorded and rewarded. And I look at my own prayers that I pray for myself and for others. And I think they, most of the time, fall far short of Paul's example here. Um, and that I'm not saying, and of course I don't think anyone would, would would assume that we shouldn't pray for physical things. Not that we shouldn't pray for Aunt Betty's goiter or Uncle Bob's gout. Um, when someone is sick, we should pray for them. When someone's lost a job, we should pray for them. When a mother has lost a child, we should pray for her. When we have a friend enduring a trial, we should pray for them. But to what end? I think this is what Paul is getting at. To what end are we praying for them? If we're simply praying that someone would escape the trial or endure the grief or, um, or find a job that he needs or that someone would simply get well, I think we're stopping short of the best kind of prayer that we should be doing and that um, we should be looking Out for people's souls. Praying that in the midst of the trial. Or the loss. Or the sickness. Not so much that those things would just be taken away. Because this is interesting I think. That God has not promised. To heal every sickness. He has not promised. um, To take people out of whatever trial they're enduring. He has not promised. um, For people to be well all the time. Or. um, To escape whatever it is that they're experiencing. But something that God has promised to his children is that he will sanctify us. We can take that to the bank. And we should be looking at that, most of all, I think, in whatever we're experiencing. Someone else is enduring. Pray that their soul would be strengthened. This list here that Paul gives, every one of these, filled with knowledge, knowing God's will, being strengthened with his power and his glorious might, um, I think this should be the focus of our prayer, certainly in light of the fact that God is gracious and that we're sinful people. Um, So he has promised to sanctify us, and we should pray towards that end. Next, after prayer, perhaps we should love others as God has loved us. Ephesians 4, 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So number one is forgive. As I've thought about this as a practical application, obviously, for um, God's grace that he's extended to me, it occurs to me that sometimes... um, when I look at my own heart, the reason that I don't want to forgive somebody else that may have wronged me or that I think they've wronged me, sometimes I don't want to forgive them because I might think that they don't deserve to be forgiven because of what they've done. And if that's the attitude in my heart, then I think I've clearly forgotten the gospel. But if anyone thinks that someone that's hurt them doesn't deserve to be forgiven, then I should be thinking about myself and knowing that I didn't deserve to be forgiven. Yet God forgave me anyway because he's gracious. Around here when we talk about showing the world what God is like, this is a very simple application is forgiving other people as God has forgiven us. Number two, I'm going to say that we should give generously. We know that also something we hear often around here is that to love is to give John fifteen twelve says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And how was it that he has loved us? He gave, exactly. Um, he gave a son for us. And So the second way we should love others is to give generously. Um, and, and I think we know that this takes many different forms. That there can be all different kinds of gifts that we can give. We know that we don't have to be wealthy to give. That's not what this is about. Um, simply because God wants us to. So giving generously, number two. Number three, if we think back to Mark 10.45, number three is serve with humility. Because Jesus himself didn't come to be served, but to serve. If I could find Philippians here. Philippians 2, talking about humble service, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he also existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and made a likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross so serving with humility and it should be easy for us to serve if we are being humble because we are considering others better than ourselves um brent said just very recently um there shouldn't be anything that we're unwilling to do when it comes to service. There shouldn't be anything that we're unwilling to do. And, again, just like there's many ways to give, we know there's many ways to serve. Um, There's kind of formal ways we can serve here in the body. You know, some of us, our names are on a list and on a schedule that we know we're going to serve at a certain time and a certain place, week after week or month after month. There's that kind of service. But I would just say that if your name is not on one of those lists to serve repeatedly, I think it should be. Um, we should be serving in very tangible, real ways here in the body. Um, but there's many kinds of service where your name is never going to be written down. That no one's ever going to know about. Um, but here's the thing I want to say about that, is that that kind of service is not going to happen accidentally. So we have to still be looking for those opportunities to serve, even behind the scenes. When we hear about a need, we should do our best if we can to meet it, to serve someone in some way. And again, I think this all flows from an attitude of humility and out of gratitude that Christ was humble to give himself for us. So what would we not want to give or serve for someone else? All right, let me go way back here. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6.6. Verse 7, the fourth way that we should love God as he has loved us. I'll read the text first. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them with a sign on your hand, and shall be on the frontals of your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This has all to do, I think, with admonishing and exhorting one another. The things of God, according to this, should constantly be in our lips in the way we speak to people. Um, And one of the most important things, I think, about this is that we need to um, be willing to have others speak to us in ways which may be uncomfortable. We should be willing to have others point out some things that they may see in us that we don't see. Exhorting and admonishing us where there may be sin in our life that we're unaware of. Um, And just in general, talking about spiritual things, I think that we need to not settle for worldly conversation. I'll have a conversation with a brother here at church or in some other context. Afterwards, I think back about it. I'm like, well, what did we just talk about? We talk about the ranger game or all the things I had to do at my office, the 12 ways I had to discipline my son on Thursday, or all these things we talked about. And, again, that's not that we should never talk about those things. But um, in the same way that we should pray for spiritual things, I think we need to be willing to talk about spiritual things. Again, Thomas Watson is very quotable. He said, speak about death and eternity. Can you belong to heaven and not speak of your country? Can we be citizens of heaven and not speak about these things? Um, And again, I just want to say that being willing to talk about temptation and sin, with our brothers, we're brother on brother, sister on sister, um, that's so important because if there's things going on in our heart that no one else knows about, if there are things that our hands are doing or our mouths are saying that no one else knows about, then there's a very good chance that at some point something's going to blow up and it's become going to become a far bigger problem with much more far-reaching consequences than if we had been speaking honestly with one of our brothers or sisters about these things. It's for our benefit that we would not have these things hidden away that nobody knows about. But have them on our lips, talk about these things, exhort and admonish one another. Next. It may seem like I'm piling on. The list just gets longer. But I'll hopefully. Make us feel better about that. Before we're done. Matthew 28. Perhaps the only th- more only thing more familiar. Than these verses. Is hearing a preacher. A teacher say. These are very familiar verses. Um. Matthew 28, starting in 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So under the heading of make disciples, um, Let's talk about making disciples first of all and then the next verse in Luke we'll talk about being a disciple. Um, When it comes to making disciples what were the actual commands that Jesus gave? What were the imperatives in these verses? What were they? Go, baptize, teach. Uh, And of course make disciples. Okay, so I'm going to take go off the table because we all know but this is not about going far away in order to do this. We can do that, but let's just take go off the table for now. We'll take make, um, baptizing people off the table, because that's kind of a rare event that most of us may not usually be involved in. So just think about making disciples and look at verse 20, where I think that the, where making disciples is actually this, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So when it comes to making disciples, what I have here on written on the blank here is that this is teaching people to obey. Teaching people to obey. Because men, I'm thinking about men because I'm a guy, um, obviously, that uh, there are men in this church that are far more wise than I am. And they've experienced more things than I have. And I would do well to have them teach me to obey. Because there's plenty of things that I can glean from the scriptures. And the Spirit can empower me to obey. But having another man teach me these things, that's what discipleship is about. So teaching them to obey. Of course, and again, this, this could be a whole other lesson. Um, not obedience, just as in checking off boxes. But it's about holiness. It's about, again, being sanctified. Um, so that's making disciples. And then let's look at Luke chapter 9. We'll look at what it is to be a disciple. Luke nine twenty three through 26. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake. He is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world. And loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. Of him. Will the son of man be ashamed. When he comes in his glory. And the glory of the father and of the angels. When it comes to being a disciple what I have written here is that being a disciple is not about self-help it's not about self-fulfillment it's about self-denial self-denial when we're following Christ when we're seeking to imitate him it's not about glorification for ourselves but it really is about humiliation being made humble um there's so much here in these verses that um, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about what it is to lose our own life, to um, die to yourself. I'd like for Russ to just volunteer to teach six weeks on this. Um, but let me share another quote here, from uh, this time from George Mueller, who's that 19th century English pastor and caretaker of who knows how many orphans. Talking about himself, he says, There was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller and to his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. I think Mueller knew what it was to die to himself. I don't think I know that yet. Uh, By God's grace, perhaps I'll learn it soon enough. But um, self-denial, um, losing our own life, and um, interestingly, when it comes to losing our own life, uh, people that are not saved, non-believers by and large in the world, they want to do everything they can to hold on to their life. In all, every sense of the word, whether it's literally wanting to delay the aging process, to fend off death, which is, perhaps, which is coming someday, doing everything they can to hold on to their life, to squeeze it all out. But from verses that we've already read, Jesus became obedient to death. Um, and, that, and in a sense, so should we. Just to follow our Lord is to walk behind him. Whatever he has done, we should also do. So self-denial is the second part of being a disciple. So I'm coming towards the end of our list here and also to the end of our time, which is good. Um, And it may seem like that this is a very long list and kind of daunting Um, because one thing could happen. When we're confronted with all of these things that we should be doing, one response could be to be overwhelmed and not do any of it. So this is what I want to say this is kind of our final note about sanctification that we certainly shouldn't look at this um, well we've looked at man's sinfulness and we looked at God's grace and now after looking at this long list it may look like a lot of works what happened to grace this looks like it's all works um, these are the two things that I'll say about sanctification and that it is this that it really it's the gospel that propels our obedience the gospel propels our obedience just um, all of these things that I've tried to highlight today are born out of a recognition of what God has done for us in Christ. And you could also look at this long list, and you know, none of this is novel, none of this is newfangled, none of this is groundbreaking, so to speak. It's very basic stuff, but that doesn't mean that it's easy, right? Um, these are the things that I need to be improving on in my own life, hopefully Many of you are better at these things than I am, but um, we are all, by God's grace, being sanctified, and the gospel propels our obedience. And then finally, I may have already said this before, um, that when it comes to sanctification, the second thing is that God has promised to do it, Uh, that we need not be um, discouraged when we look at the way that our lives need to change. Let me read 1 Thessalonians five twenty three and 24. Again, this is another prayer from Paul saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Um, if any one of us is uh, discouraged by any of these things, hopefully we're not but I think we should take encouragement in the fact that God has promised that he will bring these things about in our lives. He's given us the means of his word and all of us around is a tremendous benefit of everyone here in this room sharpening one another in relationship um, and of course the work of his spirit which enables it to happen at all. So in light of man's sinfulness, and light of God's grace, here are some things that I think we can do to respond to that. So I'll pray and we'll be done. Lord, your grace, um, thankfully, is uh, far greater than our sin. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that when we come to your word, um, that there will always be things we see that um, we realize in our hearts are not conforming to your will. And again, Father, just help us to be humble, um, to be changed by you, and to understand um, that you're able and you're willing and you desire to make us holy. Lord, continue to change us to be more like your son. And Lord, allow us to be um, helpful to one another in that regard. Thank you for giving us uh, the body that uh, we benefit from, a means of grace, Lord, that we don't take for granted. So again, thank you for this day and for the time we've had. In Christ's name and